0: IROC Space Radio. Roger. Restart. Three, two, one. It's now time for The Space Revolution with Rick Tomlinson.
1: Greetings, humans, and welcome to The Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson, and we are going to go on a ride. From here on out, every time you hear me speaking to you on this particular channel, we're going to be entering a new realm, a realm of possibility and hope A realm where people like you, regular folks, people who put their shoes on one shoe at a time, get up in the morning and make things happen in the world are actually reaching for the stars. People who have decided by giving themselves what I call permission to dream that they're going to transform the future. You see, what we're looking at right now, as we open this frontier. What we're looking at right now, as we watch these launches of the Jeff Bezos rockets, the Elon Musk rockets, the other images that you see of spacecraft roving on Mars, uh, the, the projected plans for going to the moon, the space stations that are being designed to begin orbiting the earth like a string of pearls. All of this is a part of something grand. It is a part of something huge, exciting and something humanity has never done before and you my dear listeners are going to listen to these folks as they explain it to us as they tell us what motivated them what got them started what their dreams are where they're going and how they're doing it this show is basically a combination of interview and conversation it's for you to be able to understand not just what you read about people, not just what you might get out of their biographies, what you might see on their websites or their corporate websites or the agencies they work for, but the people themselves, the human beings, people like you, people who started as children, looking up the skies at night and wondering what's out there and dreaming dreaming that incessant pervasive dream that draws you every day up and out and makes you become more than you are. You see, space is an infinite canvas. It's blank. It is something that we, you and I, will get to design. It represents a future that is unspoken and undetermined. All right, humans, we're going to be talking to my first guest here. Now, Dylan Taylor is uh, not just one of my best friends on this planet. He happens to be uh, one of the top space investors in the world. This time we're sharing the conversation. So you have to watch what we say. (laughs) I was about to to say say. that. I was about to to say that. Actually, you're pretty good at it. I'm the one who usually gets in trouble. So. um right. yeah uh again you know i want to thank you uh uh first of all here um for being on my uh my first show and um it is uh you know not surprising for you a you are a good friend and b um you're one of those kind of people that goes across the edge and and uh seeks out new things and um is willing to take those risks so uh with that being said um well, you know, let's let's dive in here, um, sure. as you know, um, and, you know, by the name of the show, we're all about the space revolution here. And I see you as one of those people who um, is helping fuel that revolution, uh, one of those people who um, walk the walk as well as talk the talk mm-hmm. and um, fund the fund. I mean, if you want to put it that way, too, I mean, you you are in it at all levels. And there's no doubt about that. And um, the first thing I guess I do want to ask you about just to sort of set the stage in your, in your largest current activity is for you to tell me, tell us a little bit about uh, Voyager. Sure. What is that? What is this entity you've created? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. And, you know, in terms of the new space revolution, if you will, Rick, I mean, I I, I do consider myself part of it, but I also consider myself um, engaged in it because of people like you right and and uh, going further back people like Jerry O'Neill and so one of the things that you know I know we'll get into it but uh, you know I feel like I'm, I'm doing my part but there are you know hundreds of people who have made this happen and and uh, in my mind you would be one of the singular figures to help drive it including helping inspire me so thank you for that yeah Voyager so the concept behind Voyager is um, the space industry is healthy, uh, in quotes. Uh, we have attracted more capital. It is an investable asset class. We have done a reasonably good job of getting this early stage funding problem addressed. I wouldn't say it's solved, but addressed. So that's all, that's all going well. We have the likes of SpaceX that have reduced the cost of launch to orbit, uh, which has been a total game changer uh, for a lot of business models. But where we still struggle is getting uh, capability assembled so that we can address some of these larger infrastructure needs that we have, and it's everything from the you know the classic O'Neillian cylinder at L5 uh, to really basic things like building a replacement to the ISS uh, or you know building a lunar rover that works or you know building CIS lunar infrastructure between GEO and the Moon. So Voyager really was created with this uh, idea that the new space phenomenon, the technology is real, the teams are real, uh, but we're not doing a, a particularly good job of harnessing all that capability, getting it to fly in formation. And if you look at the really capable companies, sort of the big four, if I can refer to them as that, the large aerospace primes, they're not necessarily going to speculate on these uh, infrastructure projects. right? They're, they're sort of taking orders from their customer, and they're not going to get out in front of their customer. And so I've said it, you know, in other formats, but uh, this this kind of uh, axiom, which is the companies that have the capability don't have the ambition, and the companies that have the ambition don't have the capability. So how do you create a platform? How do you create a company that has both of those things? So that was the idea behind Voyager, and uh, the model really was validated uh, last December when uh, Voyager won one of the CLD commercial Leo development contracts to build an ISS replacement and as a prime contractor, not at, not a sub, but a prime. So, uh, so yeah, that's the concept behind Voyager.
1: So just to re- pull that curtain back a little bit further, let's say, um, you and I are both what we would call O'Neilians, And, uh, for any listeners who don't know what that is, um, I suggest they, they go look up, uh, uh, the High Frontier documentary that you produced. Uh, what was the name of that again, if you want to give it to us? The High Frontier, The Untold Story of Gerard K. O'Neill. Correct. And, and that can be found on Apple, if I re- recall.
0: Yes, Apple and on Amazon, uh, if you would like a DVD format, which I would highly uh, recommend. But yeah, Apple Streaming and uh, Amazon for DVD.
1: Great. And so Dr. O'Neill inspired both of us to look at this. Uh, Idea of being able to uh, open and develop space, um, even if we weren't astronauts or governments or scientists. And um, um, the way I like to summarize it is, he said, take your ideas, free enterprise, and the resources of space and go out and expand humanity. So that's literally what you're doing, in a sense, uh, with Voyager. And um, you know, I think that this idea of putting several of the links of the chain together um, is fairly unique. Um, I, you know, you're doing it. Uh, perhaps Jeff Bezos is doing it internally, but he's he's doing that vertically within his own company. What you're doing is, uh, from what I understand, is you're going into companies that already exist already have great management, they're already doing good stuff. Um, And then you're looking at them and saying, well, this fits this part of the path or the chain, whatever analogy you want to use, metaphor, um, to to get us where we're going. Is that correct?
0: It is. It is. So it's almost like, uh, imagine you're a theoretical prime contractor and you have a supply chain um, and that supply chain helps you deliver the mission. It's sort of how do you recreate that theoretical prime and that theoretical supply chain, but do it under a single umbrella, a single company, and make sure that it's truly new space, right? Because that's the flip side, Rick, is um, you can calcify um, if you get too large or too bureaucratic or too complex, right? So that's really the needle we're trying to thread. Uh, Because the primes, which I admire their capability, I think we all do, but I think they'd be the first to admit they're not necessarily innovative they're not necessarily entrepreneurial. And that's really what we need to get this industry to the next level, I believe.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're, they're, they're contractors. You know, you tell them what to do. Um, we won't get into the details of how that manifests itself, but they are not going to get ahead of potential customers or clients, be that the government or anyone else. What you're doing by its very nature is you're sort of moving to the front of the wave and defining um, how it manifests, how it grows, how it occurs, uh, and then linking these very successful and exciting companies together. Could you give us uh, an example perhaps of two or three of the companies that, are, that you've, you've gathered together in this team?
0: Yeah. So one on the technology front is we did uh, acquire Pioneer Astronautics. And for those of you who don't know, that's Dr. Robert Zubrin's shop and the thing i loved about that company and you know still do is it's really an advanced technology development company so lots of ip lots of laboratory you know uh, type research on you know how do we extract uh, oxygen from moon regolith you know how do we how do we uh, extract nitrous oxide from the mars atmosphere you know things things of this nature so it's really exciting to be able to have that capability. I think they have 18 PhDs on staff. Uh, I believe that's the right number. So that think of it as a Bell Labs, uh, for those of you familiar with that. Um, another one would be Space Micro. Uh, they're on the leading edge of laser communications, which uh, I'm a big believer in that. Uh, that allows you to get more data down from space. Uh, they have other technologies that are exciting. And then last but not least, I would uh, mention NanoRacks, which uh, is the largest commercial user of the International Space Station and does most of the commercial missions on station. And they were integral, of course, in us winning the CLD contract. Uh, We being uh, Voyager, Lockheed, and NanoRacks, that's the three company team, uh, with Lockheed being the integrator and uh, uh, construction uh, partner.
1: That's great. And, you know, as you know, I go way back with Jeff Manber, who is the founder of Nanorex. We're gonna get him on the show at some point, of course. Um, and he can yell at me with that New York accent that he's got. And uh uh, but he's an, an amazing individual, as as are the leaders and, and all the companies you listed there. It is interesting, you know, because um um we had Jeff Bezos at one of my events uh, a while back and know during the sort of fireside chat he was talking about the fact that his goal um was to recreate the environment that allowed him to do what he did you know and as he said um you know when he was coming up with the idea of amazon um the post office already existed fedex already existed the internet already existed the ability to take orders these kinds of things already existed Mm. and then all he did was he rolled in Using that infrastructure, and applied his business skills and his creativity, in order as he likes to say, two kids in a dorm room Mm -hmm. could use the infrastructure to to build out from. Um, In a very very uh, direct sense, it seems to me that's almost exactly what you're doing.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, certainly Jeff, (laughs) who I admire uh, and did get to know a little bit when I did my commercial astronaut launch. um, You know, he's he's got vast resources as we know. And I think he is a very skilled uh business creator. I mean, as evidenced by Amazon. So I, I wouldn't consider can compare myself to, to Bezos. I think that's uh that's a that's a whole nother level of impact on the industry. But I think in terms of the concept of uh these lily pads, right, and building infrastructure mm-hmm. that enables the next part of the infrastructure, I definitely that's definitely the way my brain thinks. Right. And it just, you know, maybe an aside, when I did the early stage investing, you know, twelve years ago now, it wasn't because I thought I was a particularly good investor. It's because I thought that's what the industry needed. I thought that's where we were plugged up. And at that time, you know, there wasn't a space fund, right? There wasn't a VC focused on on space and and people were lamenting that fact. And I made the point, look, VCs are not even going to be attracted to this industry until we gestate and incubate companies that are at that stage. And so we're really plugged earlier in the cycle. So I'm definitely thinking, uh, and I know you are, Rick, and we talk constantly about it, is where are the gaps? right? What's holding us back? What are the impediments? And then doing projects that try to address that uh, so that we can reduce the friction in the system and ultimately fulfill the vision.
1: Yeah, that's great. I. I'm- I'm curious, you know, in your speaking of the vision, project yourself, if you would, um, a few years into the future here um, in in terms of Voyager, mm-hmm. um, what would be for you, uh, you know, the next couple of milestones and then the ultimate uh, realization of, of at least that first major tier of success that you're looking for?
0: Right, well, we, you know, we're considering uh, the public Company path, non spac public company path, and um, I would hope that that would be uh, completed, you know, in the in the near to medium term. And the reason I'm so focused on that is I think space needs new space, needs an example of a high quality, well-run public company that uh, is well supported by institutions. So that would be one milestone: uh, getting Starlab uh, built and operating, which is our CLD. Uh, space Station project uh, that would be critical. I think that'd be a huge milestone, not only for Voyager but for the industry. And then I would like to do at least one other major infrastructure project. Um, I don't know if that would be a cislunar project or something on the moon. You know, the mass driver <laughs> would be would be <laughs> great. Uh, you know, uh, which it was a Jerry O'Neill uh, Space Studies Institute project, but something like that. I think if we could get those two milestones and that third that's kind of to be defined. And maybe it's a maybe it's a Venus mission or something just, you know, really audacious because you're not going to hit a target you're not aiming at. So I, I would I would hope it would be you know something that would be bold and difficult to achieve. But th- those would be some of the things. But, you know, I think you know this well about me, Rick. Others perhaps don't is I'm more interested in the societal impact. Of these projects right i mean mm-hmm. I, I definitely want to go these infrastructure projects done but it's more um how does it benefit earth
1: i told you when you were going to come on here that we were going to ask a, a couple of little fun questions and uh so here, here's one of my first um i want you to imagine that you're cruising above the lunar surface about five thousand kilometers an hour mm-hmm. um and um you know you're about 30, or 40 kilometers above the surface, so it's really, you're really feeling it as you're going along. What music would you have playing? Wow.
0: Uh, I would be playing, I would be playing Lupe Fiasco.
1: Really? Okay. Why that? He he makes me
0: happy. He's, you know, he's a, he's a lyricist. Uh, For those of you don't know, he's a a rapper who's won a couple of Grammys, uh, happens to be a Mm -hmm. friend um and his music just makes me happy so i i yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna go with lupe
1: okay i'm gonna do a variation on that let's say you've uh you've gone out to star lab and uh you've gone out the airlock on on an eva extra vehicle air activity which is when you're actually floating outside of a space station mm-hmm. and so you're floating there and there's the earth below you what would you be listening to then
0: nothing absolutely nothing. And and the reason, of course, is I've had the privilege, Rick, as you know, of seeing the earth from space and I want to be 100% present. So the sound of silence, that's my, that's my choice.
1: Beautiful answer. Beautiful answer. Uh, The earth becomes your music at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's talk about that for a moment. Um, Because, you know, uh, a couple of months ago, you uh, strapped yourself to a an explosive device um mm-hmm. called a rocket and flew to the edge of space. Uh for listeners who don't know, um, that is called the Von Karman line. And what was the distance uh for that?
0: Oh I think we went to one one sixteen kilometers.
1: One sixteen kilometers. Um and that is uh listeners the level at which you are considered to um once you cross that Carmen line, to actually be an astronaut. Um, so Dylan is uh, technically an astronaut, having done that experience. Um, I was very lucky to be one of Dylan's guests, so I actually got to watch it happen, which was all by itself incredibly inspiring and exciting. What was it like um, for you? And you can start in the middle of the story, the beginning, uh, climbing into the spacecraft, wherever you'd like to start.
0: Yeah, so life changing, Rick. I mean, and I I don't use that word or phrase lightly. I mean, it really was a life changing uh, event for me. And really, really, the whole experience, right? The training was amazing. Bonding with the crew was amazing. Uh, just being having the enormous privilege of being one of the you know first six hundred some humans to go. Uh, just reflecting on that, just you know, understanding uh, the significance of that. And then of course the actual event, right? Being in space, floating in zero G upside down, looking at the earth from space. I'll just never forget that.
1: Now, you know, when I watch these flights, I I see people floating around doing the whole zero G thing. And uh, for me, um, if I was gonna, you know, have the chance to go up there, uh, I know that I can go take uh, one of these parabola microgravity flights and experience that part of it um i would want to be glued to the window experiencing things now you told me that you got a little bit of a special exemption from blue origin in terms of the position of your body versus the window um so that you could have more of that experience can you explain that to us
0: yeah so going through training with what they call crew Member seven uh you're trained on all the systems you do all the simulations um you train getting in and out of your seat you know, hundreds of times, because that's one of the more crucial procedures, and they have what's called an ascent-descent position, which is the position you have to be in when you launch, but also when the, um, the solid rocket motor uh, escape mechanism is armed. Because if you're not in that ascent-descent position when that occurs, uh, it's likely fatal right? Because you're going to pull like 50 G's and your neck will snap, right? Or or, or whatever the case may be. Mm. So you have to be in that ascent descent position. The uh, chairs uh, or seats kind of resemble almost like a dentist chair where you're at sort of an, an angle and your head is secure, you know, back in the headrest. And so as we were training for that and as we were contemplating, it occurred to me that no one, because of the big windows, no one's had the opportunity to really see a launch where the earth falls away and mainly because all the other mechanisms to get to space the window is not right there um, and you know typically you have to unstrap to get to the cupola or to get to the window and so it occurred to me that this would be an opportunity and then i thought to myself well what if i could re-angle or reorient my head so that i could get an even better view as the earth fell away and uh, so, I thought to myself, okay, well, will go to crew member seven, we'll go to the human factors team and I'll ask for permission to rotate my head in the seat. So importantly, the head is still in the headrest. It's just my chin, instead of being straight up and down, is is rotated to the right towards my window. And they said, yeah, no, that's fine. We, we've, we've done all the checks and it it's perfectly okay because at the end of the day, as long as your head is against the headrest, it works. It doesn't have to be at a particular orientation. And uh, so with that permission, that's, that's in fact what I did on the way up, and uh, it was extraordinary. Uh, after the flight, you debrief with the entire New Shepard crew, and I actually went to the Human Factors team, and I said, Look, if you could rotate these chairs even a degree uh, or two in the capsule, uh, it would really significantly impact the experience. And the G-forces wouldn't be that much different right? if you were two degrees rotated mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, towards the window. So anyway, I, you know, look, I've been thinking about this my whole life. I've been a fan of the new Shepard vehicle for a decade. So I've spent a lot of time (laughs) thinking about this, but I might've been the first and maybe perhaps even today, the only human to have experienced a rocket launch in that way. So it was pretty, it was pretty cool.
1: Yeah. I, I, again, we've talked about it and it just sounds absolutely thrilling and amazing. Um, you mentioned new Shepard, um, uh, you had a shepherd on your flight and, uh, can you tell us just a, a little bit about the, the other folks, uh, and maybe something about how they reacted, how they, you know, something that stands out in your memory of, of, of them, uh, that were on your crew. Yeah, sure. Well, Lane and Cameron
0: Bess were on their first father-son duo. Uh, Lane became a, a good friend. You know, we keep in touch. We're collaborating on several things. Cameron's a... Prince of a human uh, was the first pansexual, declared pansexual to go to space, had really uh, leaned into the L- LGBTQ uh, messaging around this flight, which I really admired. Um, so that was a pleasure. They were both dramatically impacted by the flight. Um, Cameron and I have collaborated on several things, including a panel that that you hosted uh, or put together, Rick, down at South by Southwest. So uh, yeah, great. A troop, and then uh, Evan Dick, who's become a very close friend, and um, is the only person to do two suborbital flights, other than maybe a couple of the uh, pilots. So obviously, he he had a good experience, right? That's why he went a second time. Uh, terrific uh, human. We're we're actually going to do a couple of adventure trips this summer, uh, including mm-hmm. uh, diving to uh, the Titanic site together. So uh, right. yeah, Evans Evans, amazing. And then Laura Shepard Churchley, who, as you mentioned, is Alan Shepard's daughter. Uh, Amazing woman. Um, We got to know my wife, Gabrielle, and I got to know Laura and her husband, Fred, well, and uh, we both live in Metro Denver. So we've had a chance to see each other socially uh, in Denver as well. And then last but not least is Michael Strahan, who uh, is a media figure, Fox Sports NFL Sunday, uh, Good Morning America co-host, Hall of Fame uh, NFL player. Amazing human, uh, kind, generous, uh, really no ego at all. Um, insisted on being treated just like any other crew member. Genius communicator, probably the most effective communicator to sort of mass audiences that I've ever met, which is saying something because I've been around amazing communicators, including yourself, Rick. But uh, Michael has just got a genius way of making things very um, Accessible and understandable to you know millions of people. Um, and he he was phenomenal. And the media attention we got on the flight was 99.9% positive, and that differed really from the first two
1: human flights, right? No, that was yeah, you could sense something. It seemed like there was a lot of love between the crew. So, Dylan, you, um, uh, having flown in space yourself, um, you know, having uh touched the the edge of the cosmos yourself, been able to have the overview effect of experiencing the earth from above um, yourself, um, have been pushing, promoting, and developing, let's say, um, a project or set of projects uh, that I admire, that that I think are amazing, and that you are um, actually trying to figure out how to get other people out there, and in fact, you already have. where did that come from and um, what um, what did you do to get that started and make that happen? Of course, mm-hmm. um, we're talking about Space for Humanity, which uh, mm-hmm. anybody listening, you should look for the uh, Space for Humanity uh, website. Um, you'll learn a lot more about it. But uh, this is the man himself who who started that. So, uh, Dylan, mm-hmm. where did it come from and how's it going so far?
0: Yeah, well, thanks. Rick, for that compliment. I I really appreciate that. And and in many ways, that's the most important work I'm doing, frankly, is to democratize uh, space and open up access. But yeah, it started with uh, the Aspen Institute. So I had the privilege of being uh, a Henry Crown Fellow of the Aspen Institute, which is this leadership program. Uh, They have every year 20 fellows that are accepted into this, uh, I think, out of 800 plus nominees, something like that. So it's, it's quite competitive. And in this fellowship program, it's a two-year program, you are challenged to do what they call a venture. And the venture is what project can you initiate that will change the world? That's sort of the, the criteria, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty, you know, pretty audacious. And I remember being with my classmates uh, or fellowship mates, and, they, you know, they clearly made a error in my selection because these are all just unbelievably uh, talented people, Rhodes scholars, and you know this and that, um, enormously gifted, intelligent uh, people who have uh, done significant things in the world. And um, people were lamenting the fact that the projects were, it was maybe a low point for the class. They were lamenting the fact that these projects were sort of impossible and yeah, no matter what venture I do, whether it's addressing climate change or whatever the case may be, it's not going to make an impact. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm sitting in this room and I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is supposedly the absolute best and brightest humans on planet Earth. Right. Um, And if they feel like they don't have the ability to make a positive difference in the world, you know, what what hope do we have? Right. So that that thought was in my mind. The other thought Mm -hmm. that was in my mind was um, Virgin had just um, had some successful test flights. This is 2016, and I was anticipating, uh, you know, travel to space by um, commercial astronauts to be, you know, a thing coming right down the pike. So those were the two thoughts I had in my mind, and uh, what I concluded is that the reason these problems seem so intractable and unsolvable is not necessarily because we don't know um, what the solutions might be or we don't have good ideas. It's because we lack perspective. And um, whether that's climate change or income inequality or racism, you know, whatever kind of um, systemic issue. Um, And I I would look at the more global ones as opposed to, you know, ones that affect a particular region or country. Mm -hmm. I I just fundamentally believe it's it's a lack of perspective. And so um, if you believe that to be true, if you believe space is a tool for transformation and that a change in perspective will unlock new solutions to these old problems, then it becomes all about getting people up there. Right. That's that's the next logical right, step. Right. And it also addresses the democratization of space because I was fearful that everyone going to space would be like myself, you know, a, a uh, quote unquote, you know, 1% white male um, because um, know those are the people that have the resources to go right at least in our current societal format so that was the notion with space for humanity founded in 2017 with the mission of getting as many people up there as we can Um, we later added on this requirement that the folks that we send have an obligation to do their own fellowship on return right so they've got to pick a large impact project when they return in, in addition to being an amb- ambassador about this, you know, this experience they've had and being a spokesperson for that, they also need to do a venture or do a project that directly ties to a UN sustainable development goal and they need to identify that in the application process. So we, we added that, uh, as a requirement as well. Um, and then of course, that's we yeah, um, yeah,
1: that's what, uh, Heinlein most people don't realize this, Robert Heinlein, the science fiction writer, uh, coined the term, paying it forward. So you're building that in. Uh, yes. They're getting the opportunity of a lifetime and then they have to pass that on. Indeed.
0: Indeed. And so we were enormously uh, privileged to be able to send our first citizen astronaut up on Blue Origin, Katya, uh, who, for those of you who don't know, perfect, perfect, perfect uh, first uh, citizen astronaut. Uh, just a little bit about her backstory. She was born in Mexico. So she's the first Mexican born female to ever go to space. She crossed the border undocumented uh, at age six with her mom uh, living in Los Angeles mm. and um, had this dream of working for NASA. And, um, you know, along the way, had a lot of naysayers, a lot of people telling her she could never do that. Uh, goes uh, working at McDonald's, works her way th- through junior college with good enough grades to get into UCLA engineering school which I'm here to tell you is an extremely, extremely difficult thing. Mm -hmm. Gets a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, which is probably the most difficult engineering degree uh, to get, and gets a job at uh, JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. It fulfills this dream. So amazing human, uh, you know, obviously goes without saying bilingual. So she's really opening up this notion of space as a tool for transformation to the Latin speaking world. Uh, you know, amazing communicator, um, huge inspiration, you know, to, to everybody. And by the way, the youngest American woman to ever go to space.
1: Wow. And I can't help, you know, I, I, I drift sometimes into the political realm and knowing that, that, uh, that rocket is launching from West Texas, um, depending on which side of the rocket she's on, she could actually look down and see the wall that would have Indeed. been built to keep people like her out. Um, and here she is transcending it literally. Um, that That's an amazing story. Um, so as you've um, been doing this, um, this work that you're doing with Space for Humanity, um, are you feeling like this is gonna be something that you're gonna be able to grow to, to enable more and more people? because? One thing I've been, I have to say, I've been a, a little bit saddened by, as you know, uh, many years ago, I signed up the, the first person to buy a ticket to space, uh, Dennis Tito. Um, and uh, he went up to the space station at the time, you know, for about a week and, and spent roughly, and this was the inside number, most people don't realize this, but it was roughly about 15 million in 2000-ish dollars. Um, From what I understand um, that what's happening here for this rather short flight, although important and powerful flight, is that people are flying up there um, and the price has actually gone through the roof because it's a demand model. Um, Do you feel that that's gonna sort of peak out soon, um, have have an apogee soon and then begin Mm. sort of coming a little bit more down to earth?
0: I don't, (laughs) Rick, I'm sorry, Not, not soon. Not soon. In fact, I think the price is likely to go up in the mm-hmm. short, and medium term. And to your point, it's because you know people now see it as a safe option, right? because people have, you know, gone through the process and they've seen other people that they recognize uh, do it. So the demand is just off the charts. Um, Inversion, of course, is not currently flying, right? So you have enormous demand, and really only one suborbital operator currently and one orbital operator currently and so I, I anticipate the prices to continue to rise until um these early adopters all go uh and or we have additional options uh, come online
1: uh, mm-hmm. so the yeah, price that, isn't going to come down but go ahead
0: no well it will it, eventually it will but i don't see it. I, I just don't see it the, the, the so, demand to your point is off the charts
1: so basically that makes your work with space for humanity, in terms of uh, I think you used the word sort of buy one fly one this sort of an attitude of of um, getting people up there who could not afford to go, and even mm-hmm. less people who can now, now because of this market forces and you know i do I want to say parenthetically to the listeners that yes, these prices are going up because we basically have one provider for for suborbital flights, one provider to orbital, as you pointed out. Mm-hmm um but i think both of us believe that as more companies come online as these this demand peaks in the early phase um those prices are going to drop uh, much the way that the first people who were able to so you know maybe fly across the atlantic on a jetliner um you know were were paying premium prices at first um in fact uh they used to be called jet setters because they were so elite um you know and i think frank sinatra um Actually created a song called "Come Fly with me because it was mm-hmm. it was worth a song. It was such an important thing to be able to mm-hmm. to do that. Um, so we are going to see these costs come down, but in the meantime the 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 avenue to to get regular folks or influencers or whatever is pretty well right now space for humanity and what you guys are doing, and maybe somebody else out there may you know want to do something similar. Um, how many people do you think you're going to be able to uh, put up in the next year or two or what do you have a target or is it going to be donation dependent?
0: Yeah, definitely as many as we can. Um, you had mentioned buy one, give one. So just a little background on that, because it, it, it's uh, relevant to your, to your question. The whole notion there was my ticket price, which is confidential and undisclosed, give the equivalent of that amount to worthy the Earth-based charities, right? To space for Earth, to demonstrate to the counter narrative um, that not everyone going to space, uh, you know, is oblivious to the fact that we have the issues here on Earth. So uh, in, in one of those charities, for example, that I supported is Astro Access, which is sending um, physically uh, challenged uh, people on zero G flights so that they can uh, experience zero gravity. So th- things like that. So it was an honor to do that. That program actually inspired uh, two folks that I mentioned earlier, Lane and Cameron Bess. So Lane and Cameron Bess, uh, and actually Evan Dick, now that I think about it, all three of those made significant, very significant donations to Space for Humanity. And so that allowed us to you know pay market, in quotes, for this uh, Blue Origin flight. And uh, from what I understand, there are other commercial astronauts that are lining up to further support space for humanity. Uh, so let's say they pay X for a ticket. You know, they might, they might not give the, that full equivalent to space for humanity, but they might give you know 10% of that number. Uh, but if lots of different commercial astronauts do that, then we can aggregate enough support to, to have another astronaut go. Um, I should also mention Space for Humanity had raised about $2.7 million in 2021, which for a nonprofit is just shocking. Uh, and that was a million, million dollars from Blue Origin as part of their windfall, which I know you had something to do with, Rick, in terms of inspiring Jeff to do that. And then $1.7 million from a campaign uh, sponsored by Virgin with Omaze, uh, which will send mm-hmm. a, a raffle winner to space. So long story short, we have some funding mechanisms that are uh, sustainable, especially if each commercial astronaut going up, you know, gives a portion of their ticket price to Space for Humanity. Uh, I think both Blue and Virgin recognize how significantly important the Space for Humanity platform is. Um, It's sending people like Katja to space. By the way, we had 7000 applicants. There's lots Mm -hmm. of Katjas, you know, ready to go so um yeah so that's that's how we're doing it and then ultimately once we have habitat up there once we have star lab and others then you know maybe we can get you know people to actually live and work up there for a period of time but um but yeah that's that's where we stand
1: yeah it's amazing and um you know don't give up hope if you're somebody who wants to go it's going to happen this is sort of a a natural early um market um response to the fact that there are very few vendors and as we get more vendors we get more possibilities more companies like the the dylan is investing in and, and and some of the rest of us are supporting um more and more people will be able to go so don't give up on your dream you're going to have the shot just keep working to get into the right place and and be there ready to go when it happens we'll be right back all right dylan so um somebody out there is is hearing this they're hearing me talking to you and they're like you know probably a younger person who knows this this is heard around the world um this the show and um they're wondering how how you did it how you were able to to make this happen in your life and um you know i know for myself uh, part of it was science fiction part of it was uh, watching what was really happening in space uh, around me and blending those things together in my mind. Um, but, uh, I want to get into some depth here, but I want to ask you the first couple of, uh, basic questions here. What was your most favorite science fiction show or movie that, that you liked?
0: It was Star Trek. You like answer. now, let, let yeah. me
1: ask you, let me do it. This a little, a little bit different. Yeah. What you liked as a kid and what you like now.
0: Yeah. Uh, same answer. Star Trek.
1: Somebody out there in the world right now um who's watching Star Trek or something like that and being inspired given the fact that you are a hardcore business investor, you actually are engaged in this field, you're making things happen, you're flying into space yourself, you're helping other people fly into space. What would you suggest as a track for somebody who has this dream that wants to pl- you know, play in the space of space, as they say. What would you tell them? Find a
0: mentor. That's the number one accelerant, I think, to anybody's um, advancement or entry into an industry, which I know is easier said than done. But uh, you can be a virtual mentor as well. I've gotten some coaching on this early in my career that maybe it's not a particular person that you're interacting with in reality, but it's someone you can model your um, ambitions around.
1: I don't know if you still do this, but you told me you used to have a vision board um, where you yes, would put your I do. images. Yeah And I what do, kind of images I, did you have up there? Oh,
0: boy. Um, yeah. And I look <laughs> at it every day or at least try to, but yeah, everything from, um, well, here's the exercise. Maybe I'll just share this. I don't have any preconceptions necessarily what to put on the vision board. What I'll do is I'll go to a bookstore, like a legitimate bookstore, and I will buy 20 uh, high quality magazines. But I'll I'll pick topics that are interesting to me. So it might be um, Discovery Channel. It might be a triathlon magazine because I enjoy doing those. It might be a travel magazine. And I'm not thumbing through them. I'm just picking these. Right. And buying 20 magazines, which, by the way, isn't cheap for those of you who haven't bought a magazine in a while. Um, And then I'll bring those home. And one Saturday morning, I will just sit down and just thumb through that and things that catch my eye. It might be a phrase. It might say uh, something. It might be a word that says, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, precision is the art of refinement or or a phrase like that. Or it might it might be word like devotion. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, devotion is something that I want to be known for. I'm devoted to the people I love and to the causes I love. Things like that. An image of maybe Starship. An image of um, you know Titan. Uh, so all these different things. And then I, then I go through that. I lay everything out. And I'm not fine cutting these. I'm just ripping the pages out. Then I go back through again and just sort of imagine, okay, how does this link to things that I actually think are important? Um, so it might be, you know, linked to a particular project that I'm fascinated by or something that I want to help unlock. Then I cut all those things out and then I put them on a cork board. And then every morning as part of my morning routine. I look at that for not long, 10, 15, 20 seconds. And, um, just make sure I visually, you know, perceive each image on there and that's it. That's, that's the whole exercise. But shockingly, if you do that, I can almost assure you, 24 months later, there will be four or five or six of the images on there uh, that you will have either accomplished or or dramatically uh, improved or substantially impacted. Uh, So, why it works, don't know. How it works, I don't know. But I I do believe it
1: it does work. Behind you is the Saturn V. Um, and, uh, you know, which our, 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 listeners may not see, but I can see as, as we're talking and, you know, the Saturn V was an amazing system. Um, it, it did get us to the moon that first time. Um, it was the result of a military industrial complex, fighting another military industrial complex for superiority. Um, and, um, you know, I've all, I, I enjoy pointing out. Much to the chagrin of some of the people in the field, that, you know, the Cold War we had at the time um, involved the Soviet Union and the United States. And so the Soviet Union launched this uh, national socialist state-driven space program. And our response as a free enterprise country was to develop a national state-driven space program to beat theirs. Um, in other words, NASA and the contractors, uh, were basically the, an extension of the government. So we had a government to government competition as we're moving into this, uh, this new phase, which has taken a little bit of time to make happen. We are starting to see private individuals like yourself, um, you know, and, and people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk who were sort of the flagship human beings. If you want to call them that of, of what's happening here put their own money into it, um, and build basically not to beat another country. Um, and men, and, and frankly, in their cases, not to beat another person, even though if you watch the media and you know, they are guys, so they do get a little bit into the, you know, minds bigger than yours and flies further thing. But, uh, uh, overall what they're doing is they're, they're reaching for their aspiration for their dreams. And they're achieving some remarkable results and to go beyond them, you know, companies like you've got in the the Voyager portfolio, um, uh, companies like rocket lab, the amazing New Zealand company, um, Astra, some of these other companies that are coming up that if you haven't heard of them, you will. And I'll, I'll probably end up having some of their, uh, leaders here on the show at some point, but these people are not in a race. Um, you know, that has an end. They are basically creating an opening and and trying to do something that they feel is significant in their life. And that is, as you and I believe, opening the frontier of space to humanity. Um, so we have this, this competing models of the private sector and the public sector. Saturn V, or let's use, um, you know, what I call the Senate launch system, which you know, is uh, the SLS or Space Launch System, as NASA calls it, uh, which to me is basically a Saturn V with some shuttle motors stuck on the side of it. Um, and they're doing this thing, and they're going to launch a few of these and put a billions and billions and billions of dollars into it um, with the idea of going to the moon and basically redoing Apollo, except maybe in an inclusive fashion. And then on the other hand, uh, I'm going to use Elon as the icon, although we know there are others out there, You've got an Elon Musk building a starship, um, which his goal is to put a lot of people on Mars. That's his thing, that's his his focus, and he's driving towards that. Now, the way I'm looking at it is that as we hit this point in time um, where, let's say he succeeds, you know, maybe he, um, uh, you know, continues to focus on this and and um you know Twitter's over here which is not one of my favorite projects of his but you know um he's he makes this happen and and here we are now we've got um Starship building on the successes it already has and becoming a reusable 100% reusable spacecraft as this begins to happen uh, you and I know that that's sort of the railroads Right? That's the steamships, that's the railroads, that's the airplane service carrying people to and from. At that point, we really are hitting the tipping point as Gladwell would have called it, or the, you know, going over the curve um, into a new realm. Do you believe um, that when we get there and this starts to happen, that we are really going to begin to see a transformation um, in what it means to be a human being, um, in, in what it means, uh, to have these things happening, because as you know, there's a lot of flack taken about rich boys and their toys and, you know, all of these kinds of attacks, you know, people would call you, for example, a tourist, which I, I vehemently disagree with. Um, do you think we will be able to cross into this new realm and begin doing great things out there? What are your thoughts? I know I've kind of set it up and you and I share a lot of thoughts there, but go for it.
0: Yeah, no, 100 percent, Rick. I mean, I. Space is a tool for transformation. The more people we have experience space, the more we reimagine what humanity can be under this new canvas, this new paradigm, uh, the better we can um, refine uh, our civilization, what it means to be human, treat each other better, all those things. So yes, 100%, I'm convinced that this um, reawakening of humanity, this uh, venturing into uh, space is going to bring um, the best of us out. I mean, it, it already has. I mean, I think we can demonstrate that with the people who have went. It's really more about how, how do you scale it, which is what you said earlier. Mm-hmm. By the way, you use the term um, keeping the game alive. Uh, I don't know if you ever read the book Finite and Infinite Games. Uh, I think James Karse is the author. Genius book. But it basically makes the point. Some games, there's a winner and a loser, and the, and the uh, objective is to win and conclude the game. Let's say Monopoly or something like that. Uh, but there are other games that are more impactful to humans and to societies, which the whole point of the game is to keep the game going. Mm-hmm. and um pass the torch to the next uh participant and the next uh and to me the the you know the revolution that you and others started is the perfect infinite game right because we're going to be mm-hmm. playing this game for you know uh millennia um as we know if not longer so um so i really like i don't know if you was intentional to use that phrase but it just it struck me that that's exactly the point the point is there is right. no winner and loser we're all winners and the point is to keep the game going
1: right and so <clears throat> it's interesting you, you put it that way I, I, yeah it just kind of popped out um you know the game that they thought they were playing during the space race was one that had an end point and and as i like to say once they took the the world's most expensive selfies a buzz and neil on the moon that basically said ha ha you know, free enterprise democracy, we won, we kicked your ass Soviets, Haha. you know, um, it, they were done, the official game. But what you're suggesting here um, is that underneath that, this, this other game was being launched. Uh, these other gamers were being created who were going to enter into this and that this is an infinite game, that this is uh, something that we will build and build and build and build on. Is that right? Indeed. Is that kind of what you're yeah,
0: thinking? hundred percent. hundred percent. So, you know, maybe just to uh, punctuate it, let's look at the participants in the industry that are um, abundance thinkers that are thinking in this way, uh, keeping the game alive versus the scarcity thinkers or, you know, trying to defeat uh, others. And I think we should support and lean into the people who are um, playing an infinite game. So it just occurred to me that that's a, that's a way to sort of screen participants in the industry and figure out where we should support, uh, throw our support and resources behind. But to me, that would be a very good, uh, litmus test.
1: Yeah. And, and and in fact, if you're like wanting to work for a particular company or invest in a company or participate in a space project, uh, you're rolling into this field, that might be what, one of the things you're looking for. Um, which by the way you are the embodiment of that. Um, I know you're, you know, people on your team, I've, I've seen people you work with, um, and you have this positivity about you. And, um, and that's, I know that that, as you, we were talking earlier about your early career and, and how you were, uh, putting yourself into this place may not have been where you were at or came from, but it's what you aspired to and what you created. And so now here we are, we're, we're getting ready to to do this breakout. Um, are you worried that anything might stop us? And what would that be? I am.
0: Um, you know, I, I wrote this article for the website you and I both created, co-created, 2211.world, the space philosophy site. And I posed this question. Uh, I said, the future of humanity in space will be answered by a single the answer to a single question, and that is what will occur first, the first combat fatality in space or the first human born in space? So and I really think that's the crossroads we're at Rick is um, are we going to copy paste what we have, militarize space, have conflict, have um, all the things that we have today, or do we have the ability to sort of reimagine now, Look, there are adversaries in the world that are bad people. I'm not here to say uh, in a a Pollyannish way that there aren't um, national security considerations. I am 100% in alignment with that. But I think um, our orientation should be towards um, advancing the civilization and making it more humane and more advanced as opposed to the opposite of that, blowing up satellites because we can demonstrate we can which Russia did recently, um, threatening to deorbit the ISS, which is the most significant thing th- uh, humans have ever done. Uh, it's the most complex machine ever created. So th- things like that. But yeah, I think um, I do worry about global conflict. Uh, I worry about a lack of will sometimes. Although, I think a lot of the people who are anti-space, their bark's a little bit louder than their bite. Um, I think they're the extreme minority uh but they they're just a bit uh, vocal and i think our industry has to do a better job of making the case that you go to space to benefit earth so those those are some of the thoughts swirling in my mind but at the end of the day i think if we just execute uh, on the on these collective visions we all have and yeah, just work you know tirelessly towards these goals uh, i don't see any of those completely derailing uh they might be speed bumps along the way but i, I I think it's clear sailing in general.
1: Yeah. And so you're, um, you know, you are, again, you're making all these different things happen. And, and, um, I know in the Voyager, uh, trajectory, um, you are putting the pieces together, um, to, you know, maybe get a house in the neighborhood with Starlab, and then go beyond that. Mm-hmm. And, I think that that comes from a very powerful place in you that's kind of defined your life, Um, you know, and and you had what uh, um, some people call a shadow career, and then you moved into the real calling, your dharma, as some people might say, where everything lines up, and this is what you're doing, and you're making it happen on multiple fronts. As as you move forward, personally, Dylan Taylor, um, do you see yourself participating even more, do you see yourself going out, actually physically going out, maybe higher? And where do you see this ultimately leading you in the next few years of your life? And what do you want to leave behind? Um, I know you like me, you want to live forever. But uh, at that moment, when we transition to whatever the heck it is, what do you want to have left behind for you?
0: Yeah. Well, it's a yeah, it's a it's a fascinating question. Obviously there's a lot there. maybe we we'll start with the legacy. Mm-hmm. I mean to me, if if the legacy was um Dylan was a good human, he treated people um respectfully and honorably and well, and he had a significant impact on the space industry. And he's left institutions, whether it's Voyager or Space for Humanity or uh, 2211.world or Multiverse Media or any of these other projects that um, have the right people involved, so that they're sustainable after I'm no longer here, uh, that would be a huge win for me. Um, I, I think I think that would be all you could ever hope for, right in your in your life. Uh, in terms of my personal involvement, yeah, I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. I, I get out of bed in the morning, I'm excited, energized to do what I do. So um i really don't see that changing you know maybe the projects get a little bit bigger in scale as we you know continue to have more success uh, i would like to personally go orbital for sure uh, i'd like to do more suborbital experiences i'm a ticket holder on version and world view and space perspectives um would love to go to the moon you know either land on it or do a cis lunar mission and i could see myself doing a one-way ticket to mars um You know, people are fascinated by that. They're like, really? Why why would you do that? And, I, you know, to me, if you're deep into your lifespan, I mean, we're all on a one-way trip in a sense, right? We're all on a one-way trip. So to me, if you're, I don't know, early 80s and you you think you have five or 10 years left, would I do a one-way ticket to Mars uh, with my wife's permission? (laughs) I think I would. Yeah, why not? So those are some of the things that I would, I would enjoy, you know, still doing in my life and career.
1: That's a great answer, and by the way, suggests uh, yet another business plan. Um, you know, for a, a uh, we can't call it a retirement community, we can't call it a rest home, we can't call it any of those things because these people would be opening a new chapter and doing something very important. Uh, mm-hmm. And Dylan, you've been doing something really important with your life. I'm aware of it. I see it. I know it. And uh, hopefully uh, our listeners have had a little bit of a taste of that with you. Um, And just uh, been a great honor to have you on. And um, obviously there's more to talk about. Maybe we'll get you back on another time and and, uh, shoot for the stars there. Thanks a lot.